Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make supply chain management review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Talking Supply Chain. Reshoring, nearshoring, global labor rates, and more. We're catching up with Rosemary Coates. I'm Bob Troublecock, and joining me today is Rosemary Coates. And among other things, Rosemary is the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, which just told me is going gangbusters. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And she's the president of Blue Silk Consulting. She has deep expertise in global supply chain management. And finally, she's also the host of the Frictionless podcast, which we host on scmr.com. So shameless plug, if you haven't listened to Rosemary, she's been getting some great guests. Um, you can find her podcasts on our homepage. Uh, be sure to check them out. Rosemary, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and be able to chat with you again, Bob. Well, we're thrilled to have you. By the way, I'm a fan of the podcast. I, uh, I you know, I look at your guests and um, and get jealous. I think you're you're bringing in some really interesting people from all across our industry. Um, I realized when we were putting this together, it's been six months since you and I last spoke for an episode. And, you know, so much has been going on, particularly in global supply chains, that this seemed like a great time to catch up. So I want to cover a few areas that I think are really in your wheelhouse. First, how do you assess what's going on in global supply chain management, given that we've had almost three years uh, that involved a global shutdown, the unleashing of you know demand on a global basis after coming back, and then just one disruption after another. And now, just when we thought it was all safe to go back in the water, the war in Ukraine and energy shortage. So, Rosemary, with all of those things going on, everything you see as a consultant and as a director of the Reshoring Institute, how are we doing? I think we're getting sort of back to normal in terms of operations, but there's been a significant shift in the way uh, people are thinking about supply chain. So now um, supply chain management has gotten visibility at the executive suite, the C-suite, and the decision uh, regarding where to source products or manufacture products, um, if anything affecting supply chain, has senior level attention. And um, as as you noted, there's a significant amount of risk out there now that we didn't see before. And so the the decisions in supply chain have become much more complex and dependent on data. Um, the certainly the war in Ukraine, you know, as an example, um, neon gas was mostly. I think Ukraine was. Um, uh, supplying about 50% of the uh, neon gas around the world. And neon gas is required to produce semiconductors. Um, it's used in the etching process on the chips. And without neon gas, you can't produce semiconductors. So you can see how it has a ripple effect throughout supply chain in, in that regard. And of course, the, um, the geopolitical situation with Taiwan and, and China has made people view China with much more risk um, than we saw maybe three or four years ago. So now um, what we're seeing is at the Reshoring Institute is an awful lot of companies that are considering shifting out of China uh, into either another low-cost country. And we'll talk about the labor rates later on, but there's some, some reasons for that. 
or um, considering bringing some manufacturing back to the U.S. And so, man, there's a lot of a lot of um, churn, I guess I would say, in supply chain, but also a much higher level in the organization attention that's being paid to uh, global operations in that regard. So two quick observations when you're talking about neon. So it's not just about keeping the lights on on the Vegas Strip. I didn't realize the role of neon gas in um, semiconductors. And, you know, something when you were talking about the attention of the C-suite, um, when I started uh, editing supply chain management review like 10 years ago now, I was writing or, or editing, you know, one article after another about how do we get uh, a seat at the table you know, or bring supply chain to the C-suite. And, you know, it, it's, it's both kind of sad, but, you know, great at the same time that a global pandemic, you know, brought the attention of the supply chain, you know, to literally everybody, uh, wondering why they can't get, you know, toilet paper and chicken breasts, but also to the C-suite. So, it, you know, it, it, took, it took a global shutdown um, you know, to, to get that attention, but it does seem as if we have it now. Yeah, um, absolutely. That, oh, whole idea, that whole idea of introducing risk um, is, a, is a strategy uh, to avoid that risk or mitigate that risk that is uh, really being considered at the C-suite level. And, you know, supply chain management is headline news in the Wall Street Journal every day. I mean, it's not, it's no longer a you know, a, a dull, boring, you know, shove it down to the operations level kind of kind of thing. Today's environment, it is front and center for sure. So so let me give you a perspective. Um, you said something that really resonated with me that, you know, in many respects, operations are back to normal. And when I talk to operational people, you know, wearing my modern materials handling hat, um, I was interviewing the VP of global distribution for uh, Gap the other day. And uh, I said to him, so, you know, Kevin, you know, uh, Black Friday's right around the corner. How do you feel? He goes, Bob, it was normal. Everything came in as it should. Everything flowed to the store as it should. It's like right back to what it used to be. Um, and the, the VP of supply chain at GE Appliances said to me, you know, we're operating like we used to operate. At the same time, I was at a planning, I'm sorry, a procurement conference in Vegas two weeks ago. And it feels as if planning and procurement are still finding their footing. And I just wondered, as you talk to clients or you see people at the, you know, the Institute, what are their biggest challenges right now as they're either day to day or looking forward? Well, I, I think it was pretty scary for a lot of industrial buyers during the pandemic who could not get parts, period. Um, factories were opening and then closing, and then opening and then closing in China, and it disrupted the supply chain in a way that um, made you know the the risk come to the forefront, and uh, to have executives take note and to uh, to figure out a way to mitigate that risk in the future. And I think a risk, as I mentioned with with uh, China and Taiwan, has only increased that nervousness. So, you know, what we're seeing at the Reshoring Institute is a lot of companies coming to us and asking for help in rebuilding their domestic supply chain. So from purchasing perspective, looking for uh, potential vendors in the U.S. that aren't visible just by Googling or, you know, doing some research, 
um, redeveloping suppliers that had previously moved offshore. So there's a lot of focus on domestic sourcing and um, you know, pur purchasing departments are stressed pretty thin. And so they come to us for, for assistance in doing that research. So that is definitely on an uptick. We also know from a, a study that thomas.net uh, did uh, uh, last year asking industrial buyers if they intended to buy more domestic products uh, than they had in the past. And the response was yes. And uh, they, the industrial buyers in, indicated they were going to buy about 10% more products in the US from vendors and suppliers in the US than they had in the past. And uh, Thomas says that that translates into about $400 billion being put back into the US economy. So while things are normalizing in terms of operations, we're also seeing a parallel path where companies are, are rethinking their supply networks and um, you know where in the world they're producing. And it's um, clearly causing changes in global supply chain management and will continue to do so over time. So let's dig into a couple of those topics, um, particularly uh, since I know they're still ongoing, tariffs and then reshoring and nearshoring. And, and here's what I'm wondering. First, uh, maybe let's take them one at a time. In terms of tariffs, because that really, even before the pandemic, you know, started disrupting global supply chains, um, you know, back in whatever it was, 2016, 2017. What's happening on the tariff front and how are companies that are operating globally dealing with that? Well, the, the intention of the tariffs, uh, they were... And there were two sets of tariffs. Um, the 232 tariffs were on aluminum and steel, and the uh, 301 penalty tariffs were on uh, products coming from China. And uh, the intention was if we put tariffs at the border, so it makes it more expensive uh, to import products from foreign suppliers, uh, then it's going to drive the redevelopment of manufacturing in America. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. I, I don't think we saw more than a, a very slight uptick in uh, manufacturing in the U.S. So um, what essentially the tariffs did was tax those imports and those, those taxes and additional costs were essentially passed on to the consumer, whether it was an industrial consumer or you and I paying more money for imported products. Um, a lot of companies absorbed that extra cost into their cost structure, so it reduced their margins. I mean, it really played havoc with a lot of economics, but didn't did not really drive much in the way of um, reshoring or bringing manufacturing back. Those tariffs are in place today and are used as kind of a, a, a bludgeon for um, the trade operations between the U.S. and China, we're still fighting over a lot of, uh, of that in, in, in that regard. Um, I think the one thing that perhaps happened, though, out of it was companies moving out of China to avoid those additional tariffs. So I, I have clients that moved to Vietnam, for example, um, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Mexico. And um, the the labor rates in those countries are actually lower. Um, you know, we're we're seeing an increase in labor rates in China across the board. So China would not be considered a low cost labor country anymore. 
So, you know, there's realignment, there's certainly nearshoring, there's a lot of interest in Mexico um, and in Central America. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're seeing a shift in global operations, which is, a, you know, a shift in the strategy of supply chain executives. So on the, the reshoring and nearshoring that you just hit on, um, you know, the, the, the guys at MIT, uh, Jim Rice and one of his colleagues did a study. Now, this, this study is now probably four or five years old. But their argument was it wasn't so much reshoring, meaning the sense of, well, I'm just going to bring it back to America because I want to do it here. It was more this concept that I've heard, you know, articulated by companies like Stanley Black and Decker and others, but specifically uh, Stanley Black and Decker of make where you sell, buy where you make. Um, and so like Stanley Black and Decker said that they were investing significantly um, in the U.S. or U.S. adjacent countries like Mexico and investing in their suppliers so that they had a supply base to support them in the U.S. and Mexico. But similarly, they were investing heavily in Eastern Europe to supply Western Europe and similarly investing in countries like, you know, Vietnam and Malaysia to supply Asia and I'm sure something similar in South America on the idea that they wanted to have production that was relatively, you know, local to where their sales markets were. And then they wanted to develop a supply base. So in the U.S., you could call it reshoring, but it was part of a broader strategy on their part. You know, how do you assess everything that's going on in this space right now? You've, you've been hitting on it, but you know, dig a little deeper for us. Yeah, so um, that's that's very interesting, and we call that local for local. So manufacturing okay. in the local environment for the local customers for your customer base. Um, and you know, we we have a lot of clients that we work with that are manufacturing in China, and you know, I always tell them if if you plan to continue to sell in China, and they should because it's a growth market in in across Asia, it's a double digit growth market. Um, uh, and so if you intend to sell in China or broader in Asia, more broadly in Asia, you should keep some manufacturing there uh, to address that market because the, the products are slightly different. They may be different colors or different revs or, um, you know, more basic products, that sort of thing. But you should keep some manufacturing there and then hopefully manufacture regionally or domestically to address the domestic market. So, yeah, I mean, manufacturing in, in Mexico, for example, is a good alternative to China if you're still looking for a low cost region. Uh, but Mexico is not America. So, you know, if you are uh, interested in serving the, the, um, the market here, as well as helping to rebuild the middle class and support American uh, infrastructure and so forth, then you might want to consider manufacturing in America. And that requires not just looking at the labor costs, but how can you extract labor through automation and um, and efficiency uh, improvements, re-engineering your production lines uh, to take advantage of a comparative uh, manufacturing cost structure. And that is what we help people to do. But you're right about the strategy. I mean, what, what, ha what happened in the past, and I was helping, I did lots of offshoring to China, was there was strictly a comparison of costs. So 
you know, executives would say to me, you know, get me to a low cost area. Let's let's go for China. Right. My competitors are in China. I want to be in China. Uh, today's decision doesn't look like that at all. It certainly starts with the economics, but then you overlay uh, the the markets. Where are your markets? You overlay um, the geopolitics, the potential risk, the future looking developments in terms of automation and so forth. So the decision today is very different, much more strategic, much higher level in the organization. Uh, and I, I think it's going to pay off for America in the future, um, but also keeping an eye towards global development through this idea of local for local manufacturing. Does it? So I've always had this theory, but, you know, you actually study this stuff. I just have theories. Um, and so help me on this one, because it, it's been my impression that bringing production back and it kind of goes to what you were saying, which is, you know, that we also look at automation and things in terms of how to get the, the production rates right, meaning that the cost of production, that bringing production back, A, might help develop, you know, the ecosystem of um, developing local supply, which, you know, could translate into, uh, translate into jobs and economic development and whatnot. But like I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, where the steel mill you know, employed 4,000 people per shift or GM Lordstown, you know, employed 35,000 people when I was a kid. And when Lordstown went out of business, they employed 1,500. And I guess what I'm getting at is because of automation and things, bringing production back um, has some great long-term consequences, but in the short term doesn't mean that we're going to have a steel mill with 4,000 jobs. Right. You're right. So, um, we like to say that the jobs went out like a tsunami and are coming back in raindrops. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, we don't want the 23 cent an hour t-shirt production back um, because it doesn't pay a living wage. If you can't pay a living wage, then you have to supplement income with welfare. And uh, so, you know, just bringing all the jobs back um, creates just a welfare state. That's not what we want. So what, you know, the aim is is to um, re-engineer products and processes, re-educate uh, workers so that they have more skillful jobs uh, and that pay better wage, pay a higher wage. And that that's what will boost the middle the middle class. So, for example, instead of, you know, a an assembly line worky, worker putting pegs in holes, we want them to learn how to run the robot that puts the pegs in holes. And that's a different skill level, requires more training and it pays better. So that's what we're aiming for is coming up the industrial curve. What today are the biggest impediments? Is it having a supply ecosystem? Does, you know, if you, uh, I'm sure there are people who brought shoes back, but shoes used to be the example of saying that, you know, if you were gonna make shoes in America, that sounds great, but you know, there's a town in China that all they do is make the eyelets that go in shoes and another town that, you know, all they make is the soles and that we lost those ecosystems. So, you know, is, is the biggest impediment um, the supply network? Is it um, talent? What is it labor rates? What's the biggest impediment today to bringing it back to the U.S.? Well, it's funny that you use shoes as an example. I um a couple of years ago, I worked for a uh, running shoe company 
and they sent me to all of their factories in China and in Vietnam. They had some quality issues that they were trying to figure out. And um, what what I was surprised about, which totally surprised me, um, was that there are about 200 manual steps to assembling an athletic shoe. You know, when you turn your shoe over and you see those colored squares and the the white and the black and uh, patterns on the back on the sole of the shoe, each of those are glued on by a person <laughs> that glues them on. So when when you have a profile of an industry where there's a lot of labor like that, then it's perhaps not not the right idea to bring it back to the U.S. because we just don't have laborers that are willing to work for $300 a month. And we shouldn't either. I mean, that's not going to help rebuild our middle class. However, there are many, many, many kind of uh, <clears throat> manufacturing profiles that um, are can be automated, um, that can, can train people to have better skills, to upskill them, uh, so they earn a better wage, and it's a it's a more mature industrial profile that we're looking at that we want to have come back. Uh, so the impediments are really, you know, to consider um, what you have to do to automate your factory. How do you rethink the strategy? Um, in China, there are many impediments to leaving China, as I think we talked about before. Um, if you, yeah, I mean, you have employment contracts, you've got um, IP issues, you've got to get a permit to leave, you've got, you know, all kinds of complications that you didn't expect when you're leaving China. Uh, in the U.S., the impediments are really redeveloping the overall supply base in the U.S. Because as things move to China, the suppliers went right along with them. So, we have to redevelop some of those suppliers in the U.S. and and we're working towards that. I I'm very hopeful and have seen some results in that regard. Uh, so I think you know in some cases you just you know an executive needs some help to clearly think through the the uh, decision and to understand what all the pitfalls are as well as the benefits. Um, we've hit on you know labor and labor rates several times here, and I know that. Um, you just did a survey of global labor rates. So one, I don't know the result. Tell me what you found. And then how is that playing into this discussion we just had? Well, we did a really interesting study. So we started it about three years ago and then the pandemic hit. We sort of put it aside. But what we did was we looked at um, several categories, about 10 categories of jobs. So, for example, production supervisor, assembly worker, machine operator, um, that sort of thing. And we took labor rates from 12 countries uh, around the world. Now, the way we selected those countries were um, the obvious choices, America, we, wanna, we want to determine um, what the labor rates are in America for comparison, as well as Western Europe and so forth. But then we looked at low cost countries and China was sort of the, the uh, the front and center, you know, the go-to place in the past. But we looked at China, we looked at Eastern Europe, um, the Czech Republic, for example, Poland, uh, and then Mexico, Indonesia, India, uh, several other countries. And we uh, did the research to determine what the labor rates were in each of those countries. So as you can imagine, it was a lot of digging and a lot of research. We put our, our interns to work and our, our um, 
MBA students and they were great researchers for us and uh, found that when we, we looked at the labor rates across the world, China comes up right in the middle these days. So it is no longer considered a low cost operating country. Uh, you know, it's labor rates, but then also the cost of operations. Um, you have to consider uh, as well, the you know, local taxes, that kind of thing. Um, but China comes back as right in the middle in terms of labor rates. The lowest cost countries now uh, at the far end where China used to be are uh, Mexico, especially central Mexico, where the labor rates are very low. Um, India, uh, Mexico, India, and Vietnam. So those were the three that, that were lowest. Now, sure, there are other places, Central America, for example, and so forth. But we pick the countries where we know our clients are going. So there may be some that would end up in Honduras, for example, but mostly... Um, our clients are looking at Mexico and Vietnam and some other countries in Asia. So those, um, Mexico, India, and India's got its own problems, but India, Mexico, and Vietnam were the low cost of the countries that we looked at. And uh, I think it was, it was really eye-opening for us. I mean, I, I thought that China would still be on the low end but clearly it is not anymore. And they're coming up the industrial curve and, and um, shedding that low cost, those low cost operations to other countries like, like Vietnam and Myanmar and uh, Bangladesh and places where it's you know, incredibly cheap uh, in terms of labor. So it was, it was quite an interesting study. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and I would guess that now, if that's the case with China, and you were saying that, you know, for instance, Mexico is still in the, the low wage area, then factor in the transportation from, you know, China to L.A. and then L.A. to wherever you're going versus Mexico to wherever you're going, right? Getting a truck across the border that you would have to think that someplace like Mexico, they may not have the skill sets yet, but you would think that someplace like Mexico would be higher up there in the desirability. Yeah, I you know Mexico is a, a very interesting and a go-to place I think for most companies to consider. Um, the labor rates are low, the production rates are pretty good, so they're they're fairly productive. Uh, quality is pretty good, so you know all of those things. And you're right, they they don't necessarily have all of the skills, um, but you know they're they're working on industrialization, and you you can see it happening. Um, I think, you know, the other advantage, of course, is proximity. Um, you don't have to worry about whether your container is going to get stuck out in the Port of Long Beach for a month because there isn't capacity to offload it. I mean, you can just drive across the border uh, and that's really helpful. And then also, if you um, if you consider uh, the USMCA and are able to meet the requirements under USMCA, you can bring all of that Mexico production in duty free. So that's, you know, that's another um, really important advantage. In fact, a couple of months ago, um, I took an intern and we went down to the border at Otay Mesa near San Diego, about about 20 miles uh, east of San Diego, the new commercial border crossing. And I, I got to say, I was astounded at how much development is down there and how many, there were hundreds of trucks waiting to cross 
uh, in the at the commercial crossing point. And surprisingly, uh, lots and lots of Chinese factories popping up. So those Chinese factories are not making Chinese goods. They're not using Chinese products. They're actually sourcing raw materials and parts from Mexico using Mexican labor and then bringing those products in under USMCA duty-free. So they're actually Chinese-owned factories, but they are, they're operating uh, and meeting the requirements for import under USMCA. Wow. Um, last question, and, and I'm really fascinated by this one as well. So in one of our emails setting this up, you mentioned that you had a client in the silicon wafer industry and about the energy, um, and it seemed like the excitement around the CHIPS Act. And then at the same time, you know, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal the other day, you know, one Taiwan semiconductor, and I think it's Micron, uh, some other chip makers, they're all cutting back on production because orders are dropping. My guess is the CHIPS Act is still relevant because of the strategic nature of, um, you know, of chips versus just traditional supply and demand. But, you know, how do you analyze what's happening here and what do you expect to happen? So yes, I'm right now I'm working with a, a semiconductor company in Silicon Valley that is a design company, what we call a fabless semiconductor. So they don't actually have manufacturing operations. That's all outsourced. Um, but they design the chips and then uh, they manage the process. So chips go through oh 10 steps or so. There, you know, there are wafers and there's a lithography process, there's a packaging process, a cutting process. And all of these are done at different companies, different facilities. So the manufacturing process is complicated. Um, the CHIPS Act, what is done, what has um, happened is that it's um, provided funding throughout the supply chain for uh, semiconductors, including the building of a number of new factories in the US. There's some uh, build out at Micron in Idaho, in, um, uh, in Arizona with Intel, in Ohio, in, uh, in a huge mega factory that's just being built in upstate New York. So it's kind of this idea, local for local, you'd like to uh, uh, you know, source your semiconductors in the US if you could for US production, right? Um, I don't think it'll ever you know, replace um, TSMC in, in Taiwan, which is by far the biggest semiconductor producer. But it does give us an advantage in terms of mitigating risk and in sourcing for government products, defense-related products and so forth. You know, we've got a lot of um, defense equipment um, and just think, you know, that semiconductors for that equipment are being sourced overseas. And that should, you know, raise the, the hairs on the back of your neck when you think about it. If China were to take over Taiwan and assume um, the control of TSMC that's making our defense equipment, making semiconductors for our defense equipment, that is a big problem. Um, so I think, you know, while there may be a slowdown in the production of um, chips for things like computers, because we all sat at home during the pandemic and bought laptops, right, for our right. kids yes. or new equipment. Yeah, we all did that. So there's probably a slowdown in that regard. Uh, but, you know, the future is semiconductors and electronics. I mean, it's never going to, the, the 
environment is never going to be reduced in terms of what's needed for semiconductor and, and electronic production. Okay. Well, thank you, Rosemary. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Um, thanks all of you uh, for joining. And then again, thank you to Rosemary Coates for joining me today for Supply Chain Management Review. I'm Bob Treblecock. And again, Rosemary, thanks so much for being my guest today. You're welcome. Thank you. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.